Hello and welcome to Iron Thinker, where international affairs are discussed. I'm Martin Zubko. Today, I'm interested in foreign policy analysis, in a special way how to approach the foreign policy, especially when you deal with very complicated topics and sensitive information. And my expert today is Dr. Eldad Ben-Aharon. Hello, Eldad. Hello there. Great to be here, Martin. Thank you for inviting me. Dr. Ben Aharon is currently 2023-25 an Irish Research Council postdoctoral fellow in international security at Dublin City University. He earned his PhD in history from the Royal Holloway University of London in 2019. His primary research area is international history of the Middle East during the Cold War which he explores through the lens of archival research, foreign policy analysis, and interviews with prominent diplomats and intelligence elite. His research has been published in leading academic journals, including the European Journal of International Security, Intelligence and National Security, Studies in Conflict and Terrorism, Oral History Review, and Cold War History, among others. His academic publications also include three book chapters in prestigious edited volumes, among them one in Genocide Denial in the 21st century and one in Transitional Justice. So I divided this interview into two parts. In the first part, we're going to speak about some basics, about the foreign policy, while in the second part, we'll show you some case studies related to two articles that Dr. Ben Aharon wrote. So my first question is, um, how do you define foreign policy? What does foreign policy mean for you in that broader political science context? So foreign policy, uh, it's, it's fundamentally entails uh, two, uh, two important components. One is the nation state and its institutions. Uh, for example, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs or the government and other branches of the government that uh, has to make, uh, has to uh, basically um, shape policy, make decisions, and so on. And that's, let's say, the more uh, uh, realistic uh, aspect of uh, foreign policy. But uh, there is also an important aspect of foreign policy, uh, which is the human uh, actors, the human nature of the, those actors. And that could be, of course, the Prime Minister, the uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs, the Minister of Defense, other state elite, also intelligence uh, uh, officials and intelligence elite. So they also, their beliefs, their culture, their uh, uh, even religion beliefs and uh, uh, professional experience could uh, tell us a lot about how they shape uh, foreign policy. Um, sometimes also, it's not really about specific individuals, it's a, a small group of individuals who can, uh, by using those, of course, uh, uh, important uh, aspects, uh, could uh, form uh, and, and implement uh, foreign policy decision making. So it's really important to look at these two, uh, uh, two main players, uh, the institutions and the uh, um, and those uh, human actors uh, separately, but also uh, together. So uh, I look at them as, as intertwined into the process of decision-making in foreign policy. Some students, they ask me in Scotland that 
there is foreign policy and mm-hmm. there is diplomacy. And, and, and some, they were not sure what is what. So is diplomacy part of foreign policy or is diplomacy like broader name for foreign policy issues? How would you address this, this interesting questions? Because this is what I, what I faced in Scotland. This is a, a really good question. Um, it's, a, it's a classic, let's say, debate about the definitions. Okay, so it really matters what kind of sources, period, a focus we have in our research. Diplomacy refers more, I think, to the more, let's say, rational aspect of foreign policy and the more uh, public aspect of foreign policy and how uh, institutions frame their, or also convey the uh, foreign policy uh, decision-making to the public. It's more like the, let's say, the more um, evident aspect of foreign policy. And foreign policy decision-making will refer more to the uh, personal uh cultural uh, aspect of foreign policy which could also be a covert aspect of uh, foreign policy decision but there are some overlaps indeed uh, we i mean in, in common language about uh, international politics we often see how uh, these two terms are being intertwined or used uh, uh, on a frequent basis uh, in, in any conversation about international politics Foreign policy analysis has some evolution. There are several steps that we can see in the history. And how this impact the international relations uh, for, from your perspective? Mm-hmm. This is a great question because um, the evolution of international relations and uh, foreign policy analysis specifically uh, has to do a lot with uh, the, the Second World War and the uh, how it unfolded to the Cold War, uh, bipolar dynamics, and then to the post-Cold War period. Um, but if we look at it, the, the field of uh, international relations uh, more broadly, uh, it was basically established after the Second World War, in which the focus has been on the nation-state system. So how state great powers as well of course, the, the superpowers and then the secondary powers or the regional powers and then smaller state responded to the bipolar tension and to the these uh, two uh, superpowers competing with each other um, and how this so how governments and state institutions respond to this tension, what kind of policies they uh, they made towards this uh, bipolar dynamics. Um, at the same time, we see some. Still, some uh, other non-traditional actors like, for example, leaders or international organizations or uh, non-governmental organizations try also to respond to this type of dynamics. I will give an example. Um, When we research Israeli foreign policy, we see how, of course, there is the government, the foreign ministry, uh, other, uh, for example, intelligence institutions like the Mossad and the, the Shibet. But we also see how uh, Jewish, international Jewish organizations, but also uh, local Jewish organizations, try to formulate their foreign policy and engage with the world as well as the government. So we see two competing 
uh, institutions, entities that try to formulate a foreign policy and, and, and advocate for the Jewish movement. Okay, so and that was that was happening already in the Cold War. So we see already that there is another dimension in foreign policy that must give uh, must get uh, attention from scholars. Okay, so it's not just the formal institutions and the state institutions, but it's also the non-governmental institutions and maybe also individuals that should get some attention from scholars uh, uh, that researching a certain period or researching a certain topic. In the contemporary foreign policy analysis, are there any main theories or frameworks that uh, you as a researcher are facing and dealing with? Uh, first of all, yes, there are. I'm not dealing with all of them, but uh, broadly speaking, there are a few few aspects to foreign policy analysis. One of which is the feminist theory, uh, which gets attention from scholars these days. Uh, specifically, how the how women uh, that leads world politics they uh, frame as decision makers uh, in, into uh, a world that is dominated by men. Okay, and we have also comparative foreign policy analysis, which looks at um, similar case studies, for example, or different case studies that looks at a specific leader or specific state elite and try to examine them through uh, uh, some, some comparative analysis. So these are the two main frameworks of, uh, of a foreign policy analysis, but uh, different case studies can, of course, develop the theory uh, further. And this is the whole idea about uh, trying to theorize uh, world politics. We don't have all the answers, and we try to look at different case studies to enrich the theory as well. It's not just uh, explaining the, the case study. So with the current tools we have already in foreign policy analysis, we can provide quite a lot of uh, interesting insight about uh, uh, specific case studies. But uh, sometimes it's not enough, and we want also to develop the theory because it's an open-ended theory in which... Um, yeah, we can still uh, build more layers to the theory. Uh, foreign policy analysis is, uh, uh, by nature, it's uh, interdisciplinary. So we look at uh, sub-theories from uh, fields of anthropology, uh, psychology, geography, economics, uh, and several other disciplines of uh, social science. So we can always uh, expand the theory further. What's your opinion about uh, some claims that the foreign policy analysis is Western-centric? That's a great question, actually. Um, more broadly speaking, before I answer your question, um, the field of international relations uh, has been frequently accused of uh, being uh, too European-centric. Okay, so many of the theories were developed based on uh, case studies of uh, European uh, countries, and some of which don't really apply to other regions in the world. So. Uh, the same goes for foreign policy analysis, of course. Uh, and um, what it means that we sometimes need to adjust the theory and uh, look at uh, case studies from the Middle East or from other regions in the world and uh, look at them differently in the sense that we need to adjust the theory or the, uh, uh, the order of some uh, steps uh, we, we use to analyze uh, case studies. I will give you an example. Also, uh, this uh, problem emerged in uh, critical security studies. Okay, so uh, we have securitization theory, which is a linear process of uh, using a speech act against a security threat, and then we need to look at the the, the audience, the political audience, or the uh, 
uh, the legal audience whether or not they accept the threat, and therefore now they can also use the special method, measures against the threat. But this um, security theory, uh, securitization theory, has been uh, focusing on, uh, on European case studies and uh, the beginning, at least when it was launched in the early 90s um, by the Copenhagen School. And then a, a second generation of, the, uh, of this uh, uh, securitization framework came along and said, well, this uh, framework applies to uh, the, the, the European countries, but what about other, uh, other countries in the world? What about other regions in the world where the uh, this linear process doesn't really apply. So we need to think how to order the uh, securitization process differently to understand security threats that are being perceived uh, subjectively by secure security actors. So this all this makes sense somehow, uh, also with regards to foreign policy analysis. So uh, we cannot use the European model to examine all the uh, other, other regions in the world. We need to look at the Middle East separately, and the culture in the Middle East and the, the, the traditions, uh, the religion, of course, uh, importance uh, makes a lot of difference in the Middle East, um, as well as other, other regions in the world. But uh, this is also the work of area specialists that needs to also adjust some of the theories uh, in order to, to use them and expand them also on case studies that has to do with the uh, expert uh, region. How do individual actors versus uh, institutional structures uh, dynamically shape the foreign policy? Because many, many people, many researchers, they always, you know, balance between the leaders writing about someone and writing about something as structures. So what's your opinion about this? I think we need to look at these two uh, entities as complementary entities. They don't compete with one another necessarily. They complement each other. And I think we can actually look at both of them to better understand decision-making because the state institutions or the, the, the entities of the nation-state provide us the framework in which decision-making are taking place. But uh, that alone cannot, that, that could emphasize a lot the rational aspect of the policy decision-making. However, the decision-making is not always uh, rational. It's not always clear, and it's not always uh, based on uh, rational decision-making. And uh, so we need to also to have the human aspect of decision-making, and therefore we turn to examine leaders and state elite, and uh, sometimes even smaller uh, diplomatic uh, actors, okay? Like you know, even an ambassador could make it, could make a difference, okay? So we need to examine these two entities in order to better understand foreign policy decision-making. So it's not just this or just that. And we cannot, the way I see it, address it as a, a zero-sum game. It's all this or that. It's both. Both are essential. Sometimes we don't ha have good access to one. Okay, so we need to find uh, another way and another source maybe to trace their decision-making and their, uh, the way they think or analyze a problem. Um, but it's ideal to have both, and sometimes we can have both. As you said, it's not always easy to get sources, information, and, and materials about the research or, or what's needed for the research. 
So in, in light of the changing scenarios and global geopolitics and all those complications, mm-hmm. what methodologies have emerged as crucial for research, for analyzing the foreign policy? What sort of contemporary trends can we see? So, first of all, foreign policy analysis as a subfield really developed after the, the in the end of the Cold War, in the post-Cold War period, where uh, it was quite evident that there's far more uh, actors in international relations which need to uh, receive attention from scholars. Uh, of course, emerging international organizations such as the EU, okay, for example, but not uh, just the EU, of course, there are other uh, international, uh, supranational organizations um, that we became influence, influencers of, of uh, world politics. Um, but it was also evident that, uh, the, uh, of course, there are leaders uh, and, and state elite that uh, influence, shape, and also uh, make a, a very important decisions sometimes uh, by themselves, okay? especially in a non-democratic context, which needs our attention as scholars. Um, so, so definitely, this is a, a, we, we see this pattern emerging after the in the end of the Cold War and the, the post-Cold War period in the last 20 years. However, diplomatic history and, and scholars who work on diplomatic history, uh, historians, diplomatic historians work more with archival research, and therefore they are more limited to this type of uh, this type of uh, sources. And within this uh, group of scholars, of course, this is a broad group of scholars, we can uh, see some scholars, uh, diplomatic historians, who work also with other type of sources like uh, interviews, media interviews, sometimes uh, even oral interviews, although it's not that common, okay, because all interviews is more uh, a journalistic, considered as a journalistic and social science method. Um, but we, we can maybe discuss this in the second part of this uh, podcast. Um, but we see also how uh, some scholars are really focusing on the, uh, the formal archival research and the formal archival records of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And I find it personally a bit uh, uh, unconvincing because uh, it hinders us as scholars to really understand uh, the, the human nature, the culture, uh, all the things that I mentioned before and how they shape foreign policy and how they uh, influence the decision-making. So I believe we need to, this is actually merging with the previous uh, answer that we need to examine both and not just uh, one. Um, but that's a problem in international relations uh, research that uh, the nation state receiving uh, too much attention from scholars and sometimes we call it also methodological nationalism. This is an important term which Students and scholars of uh, international relations needs to be more familiar with this term of uh, methodological nationalism. That, uh, in a nutshell, uh, methodological nationalism refers to the nation state as the only and uh, more most natural uh, unit for analysis because human beings belongs to a certain nation state. However, it's not always the case, right? And it's not. Uh, it cannot be the only and the primary. A unit of analysis, there are other actors which we just mentioned uh, that must get our attention as scholars as well. Leaders of the oppositions, for example, or uh, even the prime minister and the, the president of a certain country. 
and the, the Ministry of Defense, the, the Minister of Defense, and the, the Secretary of State, and the National Security Advisor. We, we know by now that by research that has been done already, that these people, uh, these individuals, whether it's men or women, they wait quite a lot in decision-making. So we need to look at them as well. But of course, traditional scholars of uh, international relations and uh, scholars who are more focusing on the um, on archival research, on formal archival research, will not uh, will not find it too convincing. And I understand why, because they want to see the formal decision making. But it's, I guess, more complicated than that. Many times there are new factors uh, which are coming to your research. For instance, technology, climate change. How do you deal with that? And uh, what is your opinion about the impact of those new notions penetrating their international relations research more and more? Well, this is a, it's a good question, of course, because uh, it, it has to do with the contemporary international relations. Uh, I did not come across these uh, two topics in my, uh, in my research project so far. So I, I cannot uh, engage with this uh, uh, specifically as a part of my research. But I can try to answer this question more broadly. I think that, of course, technology, climate change, all of these uh, uh, topics that are hot topics in international relations must get our, our attention and, uh, and uh, be also coded within uh, every, every uh, research that has, is being conducted right now on international relations. All right, but more specifically, looking at, uh, at uh, softwares and uh, technology research, uh, some scholars are, are really helpful to, to some scholars, but they cannot really replace the hands-on uh, research and the more traditional uh, way of doing things. It means that uh, people go really to the bottom of uh, reading all the, all the materials, understanding them, analyzing them, that doesn't matter right now if it's, it's qualitative uh, analysis or quantitative analysis. Um, and it, it really depends, of course, on the type of the research uh, methodology and so on. But uh, while some, some, some uh, softwares uh, could help uh, scholars save time, uh, they cannot really replace the, the way I see it. Uh, the, the human uh, mind and the analytical uh, framework that the scholars use to, to conduct the research and write the uh, uh, research and, and, and basically convey the research result. And, uh, I really believe that uh, uh, the ethical discussion around uh, AI, for example, and some other tools needs to be uh, uh, more evident and uh, students also must uh, uh, be familiar with this uh, uh, with the risks of using AI and also with uh, the ethical uh, standards that these days are being actually debated on uh, how, how to use AI in a way which is transparent, in a way which is uh, also ethical. And this, these discussions are not, uh, of course, they are open-ended and also they are uh, still evolving. They are actually at the, quite at the beginning of or the early years of this debate. So we, we're going to see how this evolves. But uh, um, these topics has to be addressed by, by scholars, but it really depends. My, my, let's say, bottom line of all of this must be addressed uh, uh, on, on, based on, on the topic that is being researched. The last question for this first part. Mm -hmm. 
I was asked uh, in in many universities and, and in many meetings, you know, how important is it to have a stance from the theoretical point of view when analyzing foreign policy? For instance, some students, they tend to say, I am a constructivist. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing everything from the constructivism or constructivist point of view. Some of them, they are neoliberalists and, and so on. What's your what's your opinion about this you know is it really important to have this stance or it's better to have more universal perspective this is a great question i think that students uh, are really busy with uh, trying to define themselves about the topic or about uh, a specific theoretical framework and i think it's uh, it's not really important at, especially when you are a student Um, because this type of uh, definitions actually knowing uh, the possibility of understanding uh, bigger uh, complex problems, uh, some of which students uh, encountering uh, with uh, during their studies or they want to write uh, their thesis project about this uh, or another topic which is really complex and trying to narrow it to one aspect of the theory, such, such as, for example, uh, uh, constructivism, really limits and hinders even the, the, the student to be able to uh, determine and get to, to the bottom of the problem, so to, to conduct uh, in-depth uh, research. So I, I really recommend um, students, but also scholars, not try to define themselves throughout one uh, school or one limited aspect of the theory, um, because it's limiting the, the lens, limiting the Uh, the ability to see the wider picture and the more, uh, especially in, in, in really multi-level, multi-complex, uh, uh, multi-layer problems, it uh, really uh, distracts scholars from seeing the, the big picture. Let's go to the case study section. And in case study section, there are two articles written mm-hmm. by Eldad. So the first article is doing oral history with the Israeli elite and the question of methodology in international relations research. What is this article about, Eldad? So this article summarizing my uh, field research experience during my uh, PhD uh, studies uh, between 2015 and uh, 2019. Um, but when I think about these uh, questions or the topics I was uh, writing about in this article, they also... I was also quite interested about them earlier on when I was writing my MA thesis back in 2013 and 14. Um, so I was actually in the end of my PhD thinking, why shouldn't I write, or somewhere towards the end of it, why shouldn't I write a methodological piece about my experience doing extensive archival research on the one hand in Israel, At the same time, also interviewing uh, these state officials and uh, different state officials with different titles, with different experience, and uh, try to actually share the, the readers. Uh, in this case, it was the whole history uh, review. Uh, what kind of um, experience I had with this in this specific field, and also how did I? Um, what was the challenges researching? a topic which was quite sensitive, Israel recognition, non-recognition of the Armenian genocide, and the question why it's, it's not uh, being recognized by Israel at the very early stages of this uh, uh, campaign, of the Armenian campaign for uh, genocide recognition back in the 70s and the 80s. But at the same time, 
really where we discussed earlier the the methodological question of how to uh, look at a more comprehensive um, relationship between state officials, state elite, and uh, the, the ministries and the, the entities that are more responsible to formulating the policy and uh, introducing it to the public. Um, so I thought about this tension a lot, and I, then I thought, how can I really share the readers with this uh, uh, with these insights and also show them a little bit about the, uh, my experience? So originally, this article was written; it was longer, and it, it had five case studies. But I, I trimmed this a bit and shortened it to three case studies. So I was trying to basically, after discussing the limitations of uh, archival research in Israel. And how did I actually conduct the, the, the elite oral history project I had in my PhD? Then I shared a number of quotes from, uh, uh, from, from my field research and about more generic topics uh, of Israeli foreign policy that does not necessarily has to do with this uh, with my PhD about the Israel's uh, policy on the Armenian genocide. And just see how this uh, different state elite who comes from various uh, diplomatic uh, uh, also intelligence uh, positions how do they what do they share with me what did they said uh, what did they emphasize and what was also uh, in common and i think that through these three three different uh, subtopics i was able to demonstrate the possibilities and also the potential of uh, conducting all history project in israel so the first question, we want to understand your research methods. What were they about? So in my PhD, I, I focused quite a lot on, on archival research on the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and uh, the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs and uh, how did they respond to Turkey's pressure not to recognize the Armenian genocide back in the late 70s and 80s. Um, However, I found this uh, very challenging because uh, so I was quite lucky that some uh, archival records that uh, contains uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of uh, formal uh, records were available, and I was able to retrieve them, read them thoroughly, and understand, and, and be able to actually uh, write about uh, these topics, subtopics, uh, and uh, integrate them into my PhD thesis. But I found that there's also some gaps in these uh, archival records. I found that some periods were hmm, not really, not really uh, available, and some topics or subtopics were not really available. They were still classified, classified, and not uh, available to scholars like me to, to study them. So I thought, well, how do I exactly overcome this problem, and how do I and deal with this, uh, this, these gaps, right? Um, and this is already started back uh, when I was working on my MA thesis uh, uh, in the University of Amsterdam back in 2013-14. And then I thought, well, that's great. I can interview some uh, yeah, state elite, uh, ambassadors, former ambassadors, um, even scholars, and, and uh, policymakers who work on this topic, and they can share with me their experience, and they can answer specific questions. And it was a great experience. So I thought, uh, uh, well, this is a great way to overcome 
some of these gaps, not all of them, but some of these gaps, and also uh, inject into this, uh, to my writing, some of the human aspect of, of decision-making and the, 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 how, how, how actually uh, policymakers uh, engage personally with these big questions, okay? So it was a great experience, and therefore I decided I will uh, follow uh, through uh, this type of methodology also in my PhD research. And uh, uh, so these are the main methods I, I used in my uh, in both of my MA thesis and then my uh, PhD thesis. Uh, extensive archival research, 70-80% of the sources are archival. Um, which makes it more an international history of the Cold War, of the late Cold War. But at the same time, I'm very interested in the foreign policy analysis aspect and the, the culture, uh, the way in which uh, decision-making were taking place and uh, how the individual uh, diplomats responded to, to some of the drama and the, the questions they had to address. And what were the challenges? Because you mentioned that not everything was available, which is like always in the research when I'm, I'm doing some research as well. And, you know, it's always the, the problem. So my experience in the 10 years that I'm interviewing has uh, showed me that it, it's, it becomes easier, easier and easier over time because uh, uh, some of the narratives, some of the people you contact, they look at your record, they look at what you publish, they look at, and they look at basically your academic merit and they say, oh, this guy, he interviewed, oh, he interviewed him and him. Oh, okay. Okay, so it's first of all easier to recruit them as interviewers, uh, but also they they uh, share with you a bit more. They take, they take the interview in a, a more serious uh, manner, but I can't really generalize about uh, all, the, all, the, all the people I speak with. Um, some of them are, let's say, um, more patients, more they want to uh, share with you more because they feel like they're in the stage in their career where they can talk a bit more freely. And, uh, and also they see this as, a, let's say, an important task for their legacy. So they, uh, they try to give you as much time as possible. But again, it's really hard to generalize. Uh, but if I need to give an advice, to, to young scholars, uh, if they ask themselves if they should do it or not, definitely do it because, um, first of all, it's a great experience and you'll be surprised by the uh, way in which some, some of the people you contact will be happy to speak with you and I'll also share with you some uh, some of their knowledge. So, uh, and of course, you will knock on some doors and some people will say, no, I'm not available. And wow, so many students these days try to contact me. And I'm too busy for that. I cannot speak to everyone, so I'm sorry. I have to say no. Or there are different kind of excuses, but one will be surprised how many people, how many state elite, uh, former state elite, would like to actually share their story, share their uh, experience. And this is really an uh, amazing uh, way of understanding foreign policy. And um, of course, specifically, I'm talking I'm now uh, discussing or referring to Israel, but um, and uh, it, it depends actually on the country, of course, and the culture in that country, because the scholar, the, the researcher also, it's not, uh, of course, uh, compulsory, but it, it, it's helpful to understand the language, understand the, the culture in that country. 
And I also wrote about that a little bit in the article itself that uh, I got different kinds of answers, uh, some of which uh, might be uh, understandable by a non-Israeli scholar as a no, but actually it's a yes. So they will give you the number, but they say, okay, I don't make appointments, call me when you are there and we'll uh, discuss it. So some people will say, oh, in my culture, people make appointments. But it, <laughs> within uh, Israel, I mean, the, in the Israeli culture, Everything happens spontaneous, and lots of people uh, really don't like to commit. Um, so they say, once you are there, call me, and we can uh, make an appointment. That's very Israeli, and that's uh, quite a positive. That's a yes. I would say that's that's a yes. Great. And what's about technology? When you were writing this article, like you were mostly with the word and writing in the in the paper notes, or or you use some different softwares. A lot of times research students are quite poor. So I was able to buy a really good uh, recording device. And I made sure that I can use it as also as the USB. Um, but it didn't really uh, replace uh, the fact that I had to listen to all the interviews and trans transcribe them myself. And I didn't use any automatic uh, software to do that. I know it's quite old, uh, old school, but uh, that's the type of equipment I had back there, uh, back then. And uh, I had to just do the, the things the old way. And also, uh, I think it's 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 uh, it's more in depth. It's more uh, thorough as a student to go through the interviews and, uh, and transcribe them yourself, because then you are more aware of what things uh, been said. How did you? Uh, and hear yourself asking some questions. You can learn from actually transcribing the the, the interviews and uh, and learning how how to become a more efficient and more, and, and better interviewer. Okay, asking uh, the the questions in a specific tone, or hearing how the narrator how the answers are being uh, uh, formulated, or what is in what what happens in between when they think about the answers or Maybe they didn't like one of the questions, so they start with. So you can learn a lot from just listening and transcribing. So that's, a, let's say, a, a, an important phase as a research student, which I recommend all, all uh, students and researchers who are doing oral history um, to, to actually take this uh, as, as an opportunity and not uh, as as uh, cutting corners and doing, I, I know that uh, software could, could serve a lot of time, but um, there is uh, no shortcuts with this. I, I fully agree with you because I am also in that category. I have the old fashioned Japanese uh, voice recorder. And once I went to one embassy to record an ambassador and he was mm -hmm. like, oh, you don't have them make laptop or or those fancy iphones and no i have mm -hmm. just the voice recorder and he said mm -hmm. like, that's that's interesting i said like you know this is about you and and i want to interview you i'm, I'm not dealing with the apple mac or or those fancy technologies because i want to see how you perform how you think and and what's your tone of language you know maybe you mm -hmm. will not like some of my questions so that will mm -hmm. be visible in the voice as well so so i think that old-fashioned style you know it's it's very very fundamental when when yeah. conducting research because like honestly you can have the latest technology 
but still it's about person it's about his thoughts and you are the researcher examining his thoughts or her thoughts you know yeah. not examining what artificial intelligence is making for you as output you know so i'm very happy that you that you also in that category let's go to the second article the yeah. second article is methodological and epistemological reflection on elite interviews and mm -hmm. the study of israel's intelligent history interview with Efrain Halevi. Just for those who don't know, Efrain Halevi is uh, or was a boss of Mossad. So again, the same questions for this article. What was the methodology when you were writing this article? So this article was uh, written in a more advanced uh, phase of my academic career. And it was also based on my uh, oral history uh, project as, as a PhD student and based on two, uh, two separate uh, interviews I conducted with the final Levy, the ninth uh, director of the Mossad. Um, and I was uh, using this uh, interview output just to explain how, how this type of interviews are so important to us as, as scholars. Uh, we try to research uh, the history, the intelligence history of uh, Israel. Also explaining that uh, intelligence and foreign policy are deeply intertwined, and it's not uh, it's it's uh, superficially uh, and artificially being separated by many scholars, um, but it's actually really intertwined, especially with this uh, Mossad elite. Uh, that they do so much of uh, they take so much weight uh, on their back, uh, conducting also diplomacy. So they are expert uh, diplomats as well. And just thinking about them as intelligence pe people, uh, it's really overlooking this important dimension of their work. And uh, therefore, we must strive to to, uh, to approach them, to use their knowledge, and to try to uh, convince them to talk to us. And uh, using, of course, uh, very specific questions that tailor to, uh, to the topic one is working on, and of course, tailored to a very specific uh, uh, event or something we are studying, but we can also ask them some other questions and uh, and try to pick their brain, for example, and then and, and then see how they respond to these uh, questions because they have extensive knowledge. They have uh, uh, a lot of they can connect a lot of dots we can't. Um, and speaking to as many as possible. Uh, intelligence elite, especially in that uh, caliber, could uh, yeah could open totally uh, new uh, avenues for research. Um, so I, I think it's an essential uh, process. And uh, last but not least, also sharing the interview outputs and, and, and also publish them as as text that could be valuable to others. Uh, it's also important because. Now these days, some scholars do do conduct research uh, and uh, have uh, their own private, their own history uh, archive, but they don't share it with anyone. So this is a valuable source of uh, uh, knowledge in which uh, scholars also uh, should, I believe, share it with other scholars. So this, uh, by publishing it as uh, partly as a journal article. Um, I'm trying to use this as an example uh, how to how to uh, basically uh, share my knowledge with other people 
and uh, maybe quotes of this uh, interview would be useful to another uh, scholar. Um, basically, that was uh, that's what I was uh, trying to do. But I was also in this, uh, especially in this first uh, uh, first part of the article, trying to engage more closely with the scholarship in intelligence studies and critical intelligence studies and look at the importance of interviews. Uh, broadly discussed in the field of uh, intelligence and national security and and uh, using Israel as a case study to to engage with this uh, uh, bigger debates about uh, uh, the Anglosphere uh, and the, the dominance of the uh, uh, English-speaking countries uh, in this uh, field of research. So it's United States, Canada, UK, New Zealand, and Australia. Okay, and how Countries in the Middle East, especially Israel, are uh, being neglected or partly neglected, now a little bit less than before, are being neglected from this uh, discussion and these debates. And uh, it, it's, 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 it's quite a shame because Israel provides actually a really interesting case study because it belongs somewhat to the West, especially in terms of the, the culture of intelligence and the way in which uh, uh, there are very close uh, connections and uh, working, uh, sharing knowledge with the uh, uh, with intelligence, parallel intelligence institutions in those countries. But at the same time, Israel is rooted in the Middle East and uh, it uh, has also uh, some Arabic culture, uh, Middle Eastern culture embedded in this, uh, in some of the processes. And uh, um, and it, it's evident. You speak to the people, you see it's, uh, it's part of... Uh, it's part of uh, being an Israeli uh, institution. So it's, it's really interesting and, and complex also. A, a case study, which needs more attention. And therefore, uh, I was trying to at least open the door for that discussion. But of course, one, one journal article cannot really um, grasp or uh, thoroughly discuss all of this uh, all of these uh, important points, but just try to uh, contextualize this case study into uh, for future research. I can imagine that you were enthusiastic because you were interviewing uh, Mossad director. But on the other hand, if I was facing Mossad director, it's also a challenge, you know, to ask right questions, to react to his answers. So how was it in, in real life? Was it like in-person interview or was it like we have a Zoom interview? No, it was in person. All the, the interviews I conducted uh, back in my uh, in my PhD, uh, also MA, MA and PhD, MA for sure. I did all of them. Uh, uh, I, I met uh, physically with all my uh, interviewees, and in the PhD period, in PhD research, I've uh, conducted ninety five percent of the interviews face to face. So they happened or in Jerusalem or in uh, they took place in Tel Aviv or Jerusalem. Usually in the, in their houses or in the offices, chambers, um, and uh, I find it very very important to meet there in uh, to meet them in their uh, in, in, in in a setting where it's suitable for them to speak openly and they feel comfortable. The sort of comfort zone, and I found that uh, meeting them in their houses. Sometimes it's very it's 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 nice. It it, it brings a better result um, because they feel very much at home as they should. They feel they can speak openly about some stuff and becomes uh, more friendly. Um, friendly in a way that 
they, of course, they don't uh, share with you anything they don't uh, need to, to share, and they're very strict about it, but they feel more comfortable. So you are one is stretching the interviewer, stretching his uh, his uh, ability as a, as an interviewer to have the full attention of the of the interviewee and uh, getting into uh, the zone where the interview can take place and uh, bring the best results. Um, but also speaking, um, uh, have conducting the interview in the office. Uh, with the closed door, it's also fine. They feel this is where they feel a bit more strict and a bit more, uh, let's say, um, less patient than in the house. But uh, the basically they they share with you whatever they can. And uh, I had this uh, uh, experience with uh, some some people and some others. So. I can I can compare, but it's really also about the nature, the, the about the individual uh, person and his uh, character, his experience, how patience is, how how much patience does uh, one have, and uh, it really changed uh, from from one individual to the other. Eldad, one of the questions uh, often asked by students is mm-hmm. how to handle sensitive information mm-hmm. or something that you get from the interviewee and mm-hmm. you consider this as a not secret but you know might be quite sensitive might be considerable for security uh, the question mm-hmm. is as a researcher mm-hmm. should you publish all you get from those people or should you think twice or should you consult what to publish with the interviewee or how does it work in a real practice especially mm-hmm. when you deal with those difficult, complicated, and sensitive topics? Mm-hmm. This is a wonderful question, and I would be happy to answer it. So basically, there are a number of methods in which one can use to verify what he can or cannot publish and what he can or cannot use when he's interviewing uh, or after the interview, in the post-interview period where you transcribe the interview. And you say, "Oh, this is sensitive. Um, what, what, what am I going to do with it?" So I will start from the beginning. First uh, thing first, it's really important to uh, be clear about that with the uh, with the speaker, with the narrator, explaining that this uh, interview is being conducted for research purposes. It will be used for this, this, and that, for writing a thesis, for example, or a book, or a journal article or a conference uh, paper and so on. Um, and being clear about that also makes one understand that the other side understand it's, it's clear for them what you're going to do with it. You're not going to publish it more on Facebook as a, as a post. Okay. Um, the second thing is also to explain that uh, you are, uh, uh, of course, have to adhere to uh, some regulations, to all history, uh, association regulations. It has to do, of course, with the university and the ethical department. Um, but the ethics are that uh, the narrator has to sign, for example, a consent form, that, uh, make sure that he or she read the uh, the purpose of the project, the research project, but also they had a chance to stop the interview and consider the questions and the answers they are responding to, and what kind of answers they respond to the questions, and also 
uh, asking to speak anonymously, for example, about some topics, that's also fine. Um, and the last thing, it's, it's really important that they uh, uh, receive uh, in advance their uh, transcription, that, uh, the transcription of the interview, and they can read it thoroughly and, uh, and uh, also say, well, I didn't like uh, this or that. Uh, I'm asking to uh, delete it from the interview. It's, it's the right to do so. Also, um, making sure that uh, the word choice or, or some things that they said are well understood. This is a chance for them to actually reread it and make sure that they are fine with it. Um, and this is a standard procedure which I've been doing uh, with all my interviews uh, throughout uh, my my, uh, my my career as an oral historian for for this purpose for. Uh, interviewing a Israeli and non-Israeli elite. Um, but with Halevi specifically, it was a little bit a different uh, process because he also uh, received uh, um, the transcription of this uh, interview, which is going to be published in uh, uh, this journal specifically in the Intelligence and National Security. He had to uh, agree to be published in that journal and also agreed to the, he gave his consent to publish it in, in the journal, but also uh, he read the transcription and, uh, and and gave his consent to be published uh, in this uh, this way um, with the same uh, with these questions with these answers and so on. So this process was a bit more uh, in de detailed and specific, but uh, I, I believe that all uh, all all historians should uh, use this uh, process. This is really important, especially with the state elite and uh, people who can let's say, uh, share some sensitive information. Um, but I really I really didn't came across a situation where a narrative uh, which shared with me something so uh, sensitive, which he never discussed with anyone else, unless they mention it uh, at the outset that they will share, share it. And uh, there was one case and they asked to speak anonymously, but. Otherwise, they usually speak open and uh, openly about uh, things, and they just share what they know. And Eldad, when you have those interviews and you have the transcripts or you have the MP3s as a recording uh, tracks, mm -hmm. what's happening after you publish the article? You delete everything or you archive those uh, recordings and transcripts? Mm -hmm. No, first of all, I don't uh, delete them. Um, and I, I, I try to archive them, but it's this is where uh, funding become essential. Okay, so we know that uh, funding could make uh, our work easier, also easier in the sense that we can uh, share it with others, but to create some kind of a respiratory system where you can uh, uh, archive and share with, public, uh, with the public uh, your interviews uh, output, and so on. This is something that needs to be created, and uh, it costs uh, uh, some money and uh, and time to to create. So I cannot really uh, uh, undertake such a project myself. But uh, what I do is actually share my interview uh, outputs in those journal articles. Um, and also, of course, if some people want to use them, they can approach me and they can ask uh, for certain uh, uh, interview output or. Uh, read the transcription, of course, this is always uh, possible. 
Um, as I mentioned before, and also mentioned this in the, in the article with Halevi, um, building these uh, uh, archives, all history archives, are extremely important uh, process in us building uh, the knowledge and expanding the knowledge about the Israeli intelligence and national security. And uh, unfortunately, this is uh, there's lack of awareness and also lack of uh, 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 significant attempts to build something like that. But as I mentioned, it's also a matter of uh, um, yeah of uh, resources which are not always available. But it's also about awareness, and I was trying to actually build an awareness through this article. Uh, writing this article about the need of this uh, type of uh, uh, archives, which, by the way, they are available in other countries in the world. Of course, the United States, uh, the UK, there the are all these collections of state elite, of diplomatic, uh, of diplomats, national security uh, people who have uh, um, uh, significant uh, interview outputs uh, that was. Uh, uh, that is now archived and open to public, and people can use it just like any other library. And this is an amazing research resource. The last question for today's interview. You are dealing with very complicated topics, and, and we can see this when going through your publications. What's your motivation to do this? What, what drives your research enthusiasm and, and research power to discover and rediscover all those issues, events, and conduct interviews with elites? Well, this is a great question. Um, I, uh, When I have to think about what is my motivation, it's purely intellectual. Um, I really want to understand these uh, big questions better through using different uh, lens and different uh, methodologies and trying to um, find out uh, new answers to old questions um, or to big big topics like that. And I really believe that uh, even though there's so many publications on the topics I've been working on, uh, some aspects of these uh, complex topics has not been studied yet. And sometimes different uh, lands could uh, provide uh, new answers or new ways to think about the problem, uh, which was not uh, has been has not been done before. So that's my primary motivation. Uh, uh, but also, I really want to uh, uh, contribute this knowledge to public debates and also scholarly debates. And uh, that that's my primary uh, motivation to write about this complex uh, and. Uh, historical yet contemporary topics. Eldad, thank you very much for your time, for your insightful thoughts and remarks for our audience and students. I wish you all the best energy for your research, for you know going to deeply discover and rediscover those topics, those complicated topics. It's a, it's a real pleasure to read your articles and your work, which I will put uh, into YouTube description. And uh, all the best to your work, to your research. And we expect, you know, more articles, more books and uh, more interviews with you, which I really enjoy. And I thought, I, I think we answer many questions and really, really important questions for junior researchers, for students, but also it's a good reflection for the senior researchers. You know, sometimes even if you are a senior, senior researcher, it's good to think again, you know, what I'm doing, how I'm doing, can I do more, you know? 
Thank you very much, Eldat. Really appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Martin. It was a pleasure to be here and uh, I look forward to the next time. See you next time and have a good day.